We're going to talk about this marvelous Lord Jesus some more tonight. Uh, soon, uh, if the chronology of the text we're going to look at is to be dealt with, soon the Lord um, will depart from earth. Uh, the first time he came is going to come to an end uh, with reference to the text we'll look at in just a few moments. And it's because he's going to be executed, publicly executed, a humiliating and painful and excruciating form of capital punishment, as you know. He's prepared for it. He has been from eternity past. But because he's so loving, he wants his followers to be prepared for it because they're not so ready to see him go. He had met with them during a very important time of the Jewish year, Passover. Uh, there they met for what's called the Passover Seder. He ate with them, and they celebrated redemption. And he spoke to them about the greater redemption he, as the Lamb of God, would provide. Uh, that's the last time he had a meal with them. It was his last supper, in fact. And then he and the 11, no, not 12, 11, because the 12th had already departed, preparing to betray the Lord. And so Jesus and the 11 left this magnificent setting. You know it to be the upper room. And from where it was, they went downhill. They passed by the temple. The Lord called attention to it. He was speaking to them, teaching them, redeeming every moment he had left with them. They would go downhill and eventually start coming up uh, to a more elevated area. They would cross a valley called the Kidron Valley and make their way to a famous place called the Mount of Olives. The specific destination that the Lord had in mind is something called the Gat Shmonim, or the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's what's kind of happening. And the Lord had been teaching them, his disciples, and then without any interruption whatsoever, he begins to pray. He, he moves seamlessly from talking to people to talking to God about those people. He, he just keeps speaking, but now he is speaking to his father. I think this is a great illustration, uh, you'll see, of what Paul later on exhorts us to do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Do you remember these words? Pray without ceasing. I don't think that means to pray and do nothing else. I don't see logistically how that could be done. There is a time for other things like sleeping and eating and all the rest. So when we're exhorted to pray without ceasing, it can't mean that. I think it means uh, be so in tune with the Lord in such unobstructed communion with him that nothing you do can inhibit your access to him. Be ready without ceasing at all times to do just what the Lord did, to open up a conversation with the Father. And so that's what happens. Now, many of the Lord's prayers, he was a praying son of God, and many of the Lord's prayers, of course, were done in private. However, the one we're about to look at is different. It was deliberately intended, I think, by the Lord 
uh, for it to win a public hearing, in particular, uh, the hearing of his disciples. He wanted, they were there, he wanted for them to hear how he communed with the Father. And we have the privilege now, think about it, some 2,000 years removed, to listen in on his prayer time as well. In fact, it has been recorded for us down to this very day. It's in John chapter 17. That's where we find our way tonight. And for those naysayers who thought we'd never get to the next chapter, here we are. Chapter 17 is like a miracle. And so uh, this chapter, it's marvelous. This contains the prayers of Jesus himself. You've heard of the Lord's Prayer, have you not? Uh, some faith groups refer to it as the Our Father, because that's how it begins. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we've labeled it the Lord's Prayer, but really, in the interest of accuracy, a better label would be that that is the disciples' prayer, because the disciples said to the Lord, can you teach us? how to pray, and he said, yes, pray this way. So in the disciples' prayer, in Hebrew we call it tefillat hatalmidim, the prayer of the disciples, the Lord said pray this way. He gave them a model, kind of a, kind of a pattern of prayer. I, I think, therefore, the Lord's prayer is better termed the disciples' prayer, but folks, what we're about to reflect on now is truly the Lord's prayer. And what you and I are about to do is eavesdrop upon the Lord and the Father in communion with one another. And uh, I hope I'm not being overly dramatic to tell you this is holy ground. All scripture is. This perhaps particularly we get to listen in on conversation between two persons of the Trinity, God the Son, God the Father. Here it is. Uh, chapter 17 of John's Gospel, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven. In teaching, his attention was directed to his disciples on earth, but in praying, his attention is directed to his Father in heaven. And so he lifted up, lifted up his eyes to heaven I'm not suggesting that that is the required prayer posture for all people at all times. In fact, I don't think this phrase is so much about a prayer posture as much as a prayer attitude. Can you find yourself, I won't ask you to do this because you may be uncomfortable in so doing, but if you did it and you've, you looked up, something happens, you, you are really reminded of the transcendence of the God you are coming before. And maybe you're coming before him because things hurt and you're overwhelmed by, the, uh, by your earth-boundedness and its circumstances. And by this posture looking up, you're reminded of transcendent deity who is above and beyond it all. And it reminds you that whatever it is you're experiencing doesn't loom that large because your God is far, far greater. It's, it's a kind of a hopeful gaze when you look up. And um, it's a gaze of dependence. You, you kind of remove all distractions and you're focused on, on the one who hears and the one who can help. And so... That's what the Lord is doing here. 
And the text says, he, he said, Father. Hmm. The son addressed God as Father. And I think that's because prayer to God is contingent upon relationship with God. You cannot have this kind of communion with God without the establishment of a relationship with God. That makes sense, doesn't it? Some people think they can just charge into the throne room of grace and have an audience with God, but I don't think that's true until you have right standing with God. Well, of course, the Son does, and so he refers to Almighty God as his Father. You can only, however, call God your Father if you are his child. Don't answer this out loud, just to yourself. Are you God's child? Are you a son of God or a daughter of God? If you can't answer in the affirmative, but would allow us to help you maybe get there, we would love to meet with you at the conclusion of the service. This is an important matter. Well, anyway, the Lord refers to God as Father. And I have to tell you, in Hebrew thinking, that's not typical. Uh, I mean, this is how little children address their dads. This is not how grown adults address their God. But Jesus did, and I think he tells us so too can we. In fact, in the model of prayer I referred to earlier, the disciples' prayer, this is in fact what the Lord told his disciples. He told them, pray this way. Our Father, two very, very powerful words because in uttering these words, think about it, the beloved, only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus, is inviting us into the same relationship he has with God his father. It's as if he is saying, you know, we, the father and I, have been and always shall be in very close relationship and sweet communion. God is my father, but you can now think of him. He's speaking to those who've accepted him. You can now think of Almighty God as our father. That's what he says. Now, religious formality, I know this from Judaism, but maybe if you've come from a religion of a different sort, you know it as well. Religious formality does an interesting thing. It says to the uh, member of the religion, keep your distance from God. In fact, it uh, erects uh, obstacles to your direct access with God. In my background, you have to go through rabbis and Yours, maybe priests or who knows what. And here the Lord Jesus seems to have direct access to his Father and wants us to do the same. And that's why he's teaching his disciples just how accessible is God the Father. So religious formality essentially says keep your distance, but Jesus says no, do what I'm doing. Draw near to God as your Father, just as a child draws near to his or her Father. In the day in which Jesus was speaking, the Jewish religious custom was to address God in light of his sovereignty and his holiness, and if I can coin a word, in light of his bigness. And he most certainly is all of those things. But then along comes radical Rabbi Yeshua, Jesus, and he declares we can address God not only in light of his bigness, but get this, also 
in light of his daddiness. That's a tough one. If you have that concept of God, you didn't get it from religion. You can only get it from scripture in a personal relationship. Now, if you're having a hard time thinking of God that way, you're uncomfortable with the familiarity, maybe the words of Paul can help. Listen to this. Romans 8, verse 15, Paul says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You see? If you only are aware of the bigness of God but haven't experienced the daddiness of God, we would like to speak with you. You can have both. A very healthy respect for the bigness of God, but also a wonderful access to him as your Abba Father. Well, the Lord continues praying to his Father by declaring this. He says, we're still in verse 1. He says, the hour has come. So I asked myself, I ask you, what hour is he speaking of? Folks, it is the predetermined hour. It is the God-ordained hour of the cross. Now, we have read previously in John's gospel about the Lord's hour not having yet come. Let me refresh your memory. John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. John Chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said, my time is not here yet. John chapter 7, verse 8, Jesus said, my time has not yet fully come. John chapter 7, verse 30, we read, so they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And now for the first time here in his prayer to the Father, we find out. His hour has come. He declares it to the Father. They're in union. They are in agreement. He declares in the hearing of his disciples, the hour for the cross is about to come. This is the hour predetermined by Father and Son together before the foundation of the world for the Son to provide atonement for the sins of people like you and I on the cross. That hour has come. And the Lord prays in light of the impending imminent coming of the hour of the cross. Look at The Lord prays, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. But I wonder, how? How, how will the cross bring glory to God? What glory is there in the old rugged cross? Well, you know the words of this well-known hymn. Uh, I won't sing it to you because I love you and don't want to hurt your ears. But here are the words on a hill far away. You know it. Stood an old rugged cross. Here's how it's described. We sing it. The emblem of, not glory, the emblem of suffering and shame. Indeed, the cross was a shameful form of execution. Witnesses to it were filled with disdain for the cross. Only the most common of criminals would be impaled upon it. So I ask, where is the glory contained in it? Well, folks, think about the word glory. It means to highlight the characteristics or attributes of God. That's what to glorify God means. The cross did this, if you think about it. The cross, more than anything else, put the attributes, the perfections of God 
on display. See, on the cross, we see God's Son suffering for sin. This displays God's holiness. And on the cross, we see God's Son suffering for our sin. This displays God's grace and mercy and love. So there's glory in the cross. Now in every religion known to humankind, the one I came from, maybe the ones you've come from, in every religion known to humankind, I think I'm right about this, the member gets some of the glory. Why? Because right standing with God in all religions is at least in part due to man's works or merits. Yeah. But the cross is something entirely different. On the cross, God alone gets all the glory. Why? Because the saving which took place on the cross is due entirely to God's grace and mercy. You and I contributed not one bit to it. Therefore, we sing to God be the glory, you see. Now, Satan, in his temptations, saw this coming, that God would, in fact, be glorified through the cross. And therefore, in the temptations he imposed upon the Lord, uh, the root interest behind them is to dissuade the Lord from taking to the cross. And in fact, Satan, in essence, offered to him the crown without the cross. He essentially said, you can come into your own. People will worship you. You can bypass the pain of the cross, the, cr the crown without the cross. Aren't you grateful that the Lord Jesus withstood satanic temptation and in fact took to the cross? And so again we say to God be the glory. It's all about the glory of God. Now if Jesus, think about this, had stopped in what he was doing just short of the cross, think about this, it would have been in effect to say God's love, his grace, his mercy only goes so far. It goes up to the cross, but not through the cross. But by going to the cross, the Lord Jesus is clearly demonstrating that there's absolutely nothing the love of God was not prepared to do to redeem sinners like you and I. There's glory to God. Indeed, in the cross. So the Son says, glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. And he continues, now we made it to verse 2. He says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. I find this perplexing. I'll tell you why. For Jesus to speak of his authority at this moment doesn't make sense to me. Because at this moment, it appears that there are those who have greater authority than he does. I mean, people are calling the shots. In just a few hours, he will be arrested. He will be tried. He will be crucified. And yet he lays claim to fullness of authority. Why did he do that? He seems to me to be powerless. This is the time you would not expect him to speak of his authority. Why then did he? Yeah, because he possessed it in fullness all through this. He had full authority, for instance, over Judas. Looks like Judas is doing what he wants to. That's not true. He had full authority over all the Jewish religious leaders. He had full authority over all the Roman governmental officials. You see, in all that all these people did, they were un 
unwittingly and unknowingly fulfilling the very plan and purpose of God to save folks like you and I who have sinned. I'd like to read this to you that says it better than I could, of course. It's Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28. Listen, for truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with, look, the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, every ethnicity was gathered there, but now listen, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. <clears throat> all the players in the crucifixion were playing right into the hand of foreordained, um, predetermined scripture. Yes, Jesus had full authority of all that was going on. And why is it in particular that the Father gave the Son fullness of authority? Well, the answer is given there in verse 2, that to all you, these are the words of Jesus to the Father, that to all whom you, Father, have given him, he may give eternal life. So the authority given to the Son by the Father is for a specific and precise purpose. It was for him to have the authority to give eternal life to the people given to him by the Father. Jesus has authority to save. That's the point. Now those who would come to embrace the Lord one way or the other by faith, think about this, are actually the Father's gift to the Son. I don't know if you're a Christian, if you think of yourself this way, if you're like me, uh, you have a greater tendency to think of yourself as junk, defective, unlovable. But as I read this text, um, you and I, if we're believers, ought to begin to think of ourselves as the Father's gift to the Son. Now you may say we're more like a booby prize than a gift but that's not true in the eyes of the Father, nor in the Redeemer who is conforming us little by little to his own image. Think about it. A gift given by the Father. Every saved believer here, everyone uh, is a gift given by the Father to the Son who has authority to redeem and save us to the uttermost. Now, the Lord has spoken of eternal life, and now, in verse 3, he defines it. Look, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we see, eternal life is about knowing not just intellectually, but relationally. Eternal life is about knowing, oh no, not just the Father. Eternal life is about knowing the Father and the Son. In fact, eternal life is about knowing the Father through the Son. So I always think of eternal life in terms of duration of life, but it's really more to do with quality of life. What good is it to live forever in misery? What good is it to live forever in sickness? What good is it to live forever in depression and in anxiety and uh, with physical affliction or with psychological malady? That sounds more like a curse than a blessing, and now I got it. Oh, no. The essence of eternal life is not longevity. 
the essence of eternal life is quality of life. What do you mean quality? Well, the only one who by nature is eternal is God himself. Therefore, if the Son has authority to bequeath to us eternal life, that means we, by knowledge of the Father through the Son, we get to share in the life of God. Wow. And if eternal life consists in knowing the Father through the Son, do you realize eternal life has already begun for us now? Yeah. But it'll get better. Oh, no, we've not experienced the fullness of the knowledge of the Father through the Son. We will when we're in his literal presence and see him face to face. Oh, that will be the fullness of the knowledge of Father and Son, and that will be the fullness of joy and the essence of eternal life. But now we're getting hints of it. We're getting hints of it even, even now. And so what a blessing this is. Therefore, when... One, by faith, comes to know the Father through the Son. One is born anew into an entirely new quality of life that one never had before. And again, to emphasize, this doesn't mean knowledge here is intellectual only. Sadly, many more people know of Jesus intellectually than those who by faith know him experientially and personally and relationally. That's the key to eternal life. So, what a wonderful gift has been bequeathed to us under the authority of the Son, Jesus Christ. And this is what the Lord now prays to the Father in verse 4. He said, I have glorified you on earth. How? Having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Boy, wouldn't that be a good thing to be inscribed on your tombstone? Don't rush it, but just something to think about. Um, I have accomplished the work you have given me to do. Oh, man. That would be a good thing to shoot for. But I'm a little um, confused about this verse. Look, it seems that the Lord is declaring it in the past tense. Do you see it? I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished uh, the work you gave me to do. But he didn't when he spoke this. The crucifixion was future to this statement. The resurrection was future to this statement. The ascension of the Lord was future. How then could the Lord speak of future contingencies in the past tense. Ah, see, that's just it. Only he could, because he's God. And what he sets out to do is so sure and certain of accomplishment, only God can speak of a future event as if it's already occurred. Only he could do it. We dare not do it. When we do it, we are way beyond our authority. Look, I don't want to bring us too far down to earth, but I was watching, okay, I do this all the time. I watch The Voice and I watch American Idol. I watch stuff like that. Brother Chuck gives me a hard time for being so petty and frivolous and wasting my, my time on this uh, sort of thing. But I can tell you what, what he does. But anyway, so I was watching. I was watching it. And here's what they you know, they interview the contestants, and I know they mean well, but I, so many of them say, I'm the winner, I've won, 
I'm, you know, I'm going to be the winner. See, those are people speaking about a future contingency as if it already happened, and no one has the opportunity to do that. Our words can't speak into existence what is yet to happen. We can't think it into existence. But only Jesus can declare future outcomes in the past, as if it's in the past, because only Jesus is omniscient and sovereign, and only Jesus is not bounded by space and time. And therefore, he speaks of the accomplishment of the totality of God the Father's redemptive work, which he sent the Son to perform. Jesus can essentially said to the Father, Father, it's as good as done. And then he prays in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, before the world was. You know what the cross was for Jesus? It, it was the way home. Hmm. He yearns to go home, to be in the presence of the Father. He yearns to be restored to the full glory he knew with the Father before his enfleshment in humiliation before he came down to earth and became like you and I, he yearned to share once again in the glory with which he and the Father were glorified, not just before his humiliation and crucifixion, but even before, as it says, the world itself was. He's not seeking his own glory. He's seeking the glory he shared with the Father from eternity Past. That's what the cross meant to him. The glory, joint glory, which he shared with the Father. And if I could sum up now these five verses, I think a major theme is that God would be glorified. We saw this idea in verse 1, in verse 4, and now again in verse 5. I guess it's about time to, to speak more specifically about what glory means. Listen to this. It literally means heavy or weighty. That's surprising that the word glory in Greek would mean heavy or weighty. What does that mean? Well, to give God the glory means that our opinion of him is heavy. It is weighty. It's not lowly. We would never say God is our co-pilot. No, no, that's, a, not, that's not a substantial, substantive, weighty evaluation of God. We, we would never say, refer to God, we would ne never say the big guy upstairs. That's not a weighty evaluation of God. We would never use, we try not to use the name of God in vain. Why? Oh, no. We have a much heavier, much more substantial notion of who God is. We don't think it would glorify him to say those things of him, to use his name so profanely. That's what it means to glorify God. Oh no, it's weighty, weighty to think about his attributes and character and perfection. We give God glory, you see, when we are helping people around us to see just how big and awesome and substantial and heavy and weighty are all of his perfections and attributes. The glory of God was for the Lord Jesus, 
his number one interest and should be for us as well, our primary ambition. Now, contrary to many false teachers, they seem to be cropping up all the time. I just read some stuff by another one today. Um, I, I won't mention any names or anything, but ask me later and I'll tell you everything. Um, it's sick and crazy. Here still yet, this false teacher uh, is persuading us that God exists to make us happy. No, no, we exist to put God on display. We exist to give God glory. It, if we're patterning our lives after that of the Lord Jesus, <laughs> God doesn't exist to make us happy and healthy and all that stuff. Uh, though he can and oftentimes does. No, 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 no. We exist to give glory to God. This being uh, the case, as we have seen with the Lord Jesus, uh, in all that we do and all that we say, wherever we go, God's glory is to be our primary goal. That's why Paul said this. Um, we're closing here. But Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Yeah, that's what he said. Do everything. You know, in the context, there were debates about what should be eaten and what shouldn't, what's kosher, what's not, should you drink this, should you drink that. These are worthy discussions and debate. But Paul said, hang on there for a second. Don't get so immersed in the debate that you miss this. The deciding issue for you, even when it comes to all of these matters, even the activities, the ordinary activities of daily life, whether you eat or drink, make sure you're doing it for the glory of God. Not to prove a point. Make sure you're doing it for the glory of God. This passage has really helped me. It's the Lord's last words to his father before through the cross he went home to him. He uttered them, as I mentioned, publicly in the earshot of his disciples then and by application, we his disciples now. The glory of God permeated everything he did so too it should be the case with us. Therefore, could I ask you to stand to your feet? We're going to leave in just a second, but I want us to leave with the glory of God on our hearts and mind once again. If you want to know more about access to this God worthy of glory, we'd like to meet with you in the Connection Center on your way out. Turn left towards, towards in, left or right, doesn't matter. There'll be people there. They'll pray with you. Maybe there are some burdens you'd like to share with someone. Maybe you have questions about accessing this, Lord Jesus. We'd be glad to speak with you. Think about doing this that the rest of us who know Christ are going to do right now. We're going to give God the glory in song. Do you know this song? To God be the glory, great things he hath done. Help me sing it, would you please? The words will appear before you, and if you don't help me, it's not going to be good. Here we go. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Here's what we do. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Let the earth praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he Let's go out of this place, giving God the glory this week. God bless you folks. See you later.